Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Evan. I am delighted to have you today on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You and I had an opportunity to catch up last week, uh, got to know each other a little bit. Um, you and I have some mutual friends, and uh, we, uh, we were talking about some writing that you've done here in the past. And I'm looking forward to the conversation going in really in any direction you'd like to take it. Uh, but before we do that, Evan, why don't we just, um, as always, just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners. That's great. It's good to be here. Thanks, Jason. I know we've got a bunch of great friends in common. I am Evan Wildstein, a born and raised New Yorker who's spent a dozen or so years in the great state of Texas. I'm here in Houston. I consider myself a non-profiteer for whatever that's worth. And I've been doing all sorts of good nonprofit stuff from public programs to philanthropy, board service, et cetera, et cetera, for coming up on 20 years now. And just thrilled to talk with you about whatever we can talk about. Yeah. So I have not done any fundraising in Houston in several years. Um, I was doing when I, I was working on a capital campaign project up, up in, um, is it Kingwood? Kingwood's mm-hmm. neighborhood north of the city. And uh, and it was like a like all my conversations seemed to be when I'd meet with major donors, uh, with, the, with the clients, major donors. It seemed like I was always talking about the oil and gas industry. Is that still a um, is, that, is that still a predominant? Does that ever change in the Houston area that oil and gas comes up um, in in any major donor conversation? Oh, certainly. I think without fail, you. You can't really turn a corner and not see 
I would say the corporate or philanthropic <laughs> philanthropic impact of the the energy sector, oil and gas. Um, it's a huge entity here. Houston's also really big on getting there on tech, and it's the largest med center in the world as well. Yeah. I think there's something like over a hundred thousand employees. So it's a you know there are people who still think we ride horseback, um, but it's it's it is a super interesting progressive city geographically. What I find fascinating, I'm, I'm born in Brooklyn, raised around New York, and uh-huh. then you come to Houston, which is when people think of Houston, they're they're generally globally talking about Harris County, which is if you look at a map, Houston is this inner loop of the city. It's about two and a half million people. You expand beyond that, Harris County is about four and a half million people. And then when people talk about Houston, Houston, it's a geo region of about 10,000 square miles and over 7 million people. So it's it's massive. And in that scale, it's the third, they say fourth, but I really think it's the third largest major metro region in the States. And it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So you've got as many people as New York City has, but you've got way more space in between everybody. It's kind of, kind of the way it works. Because I think, I want to say New York City is... Seven or eight million people, and but they but they've consolidated themselves on a couple of islands, and so it's mm-hmm. a, yeah. You got you guys have much more room to breathe, I guess you could say, <laughs> in Houston. So Evan, we uh, we always ask our the big idea or bold opinion. The bigger and the, the bigger and the bolder, the better they are, and the more you've got to say about it, usually means that um, that I just sit back and keep you going. So uh, rather than me hopping up on my soapboxes, which I'm notorious to do if if it's not quite. Uh, provocative enough so what do you got for us oh well first i'll ask how long you got but i but i think here's the big (laughs) here's the big thing that i want to bring to the table and i I believe it's how you and i originally connected around this piece that i wrote for philanthropy news digest the development bill of rights uh my take on this is it's two part Uh, the first part is that i believe the age of nonprofit or nonprofit fundraiser self-care is here. And that's part one. I think part two is that I think the window on us acting on that is closing. And that's that part two is, is I've had a lot of conversations with peers in the field in Texas and beyond Michelle Brin and I, I know, you know, Michelle, well, we've chatted about this a lot. And I think we have seen in the past 30 or so months, this real rallying force towards psychological safety, emotional, mental well-being. Fundraiser self-care, especially. It's what what inspired me to write that piece. But I'm also looking at how pre-2020, a lot of organizational behavior is going back to. And that's the concern that I have. It's part of the reason I wrote that piece. It's part of the reason I, you know, Michelle and I spoke at a, a conference here in Houston in June for Association of Fundraising Professionals in Houston. And we spoke on this topic. And what was glaring to me was how we thought we'd be up there for a while, pontificating, if I might say, about how we can do self-care and psychological safety and all that better. And we barely got through 10 or 15 minutes of chat before hands started going up in the audience. People started just asking so many questions that indicated to us that we have not gone as far in the progressive way as we thought we were going to go in this many years after 2020. And I started, you know, the past year or so, I started to get a little freaked out by that, how there's this landing strip and that maybe we missed it a little bit. And maybe I'm a little bit more cautious realism on that than 
than a lot of my peers in the progressive. No, we're doing it. You know, we're getting salaries listed in the job descriptions. We're we're taking time for ourselves as employees. But yet, I have so many examples that I'm seeing of people who are just not there. Their bosses, their organizations, their peers, their board volunteers, very s- sort of traditional pre-pandemic mindsets. So that that's where my brain is these days a lot. So just let's just reflect on so I can totally sort of visualize the you and Michelle standing there presenting to the group in Houston and you you present your concepts and 15 minutes in everybody just starts you know everybody everybody in the room's got something to say about this. So what's the my, my curiosity is to sort of set the tone for this conversation. What is that sort of that, is it a negative energy you're getting from the group? Is it, is it a sense of optimism that you're getting? Is it, is it an attitude amongst the fundraisers who are responding to your ideas that, that we can actually get this right? Or, or, or is it something else? Like what's going on with those people who are responding to this in the room? Mm, I think it really, let me try and say a few things and then get to a central point. I think it's, it's dependent on who you're speaking with. This particular conference was the Houston AFP annual shindig that they do. Yeah. Uh, and it was interesting because the conference, they had Vu Lei, the nonprofit AF guy, as yeah. the keynote speaker. Yeah, for sure. Got up there first thing in the morning, crowd on their feet, clapping, really loving his, you know, uh, and I, I'm fully on board with with the messaging that he has. And he got people real excited about you know, we need to take better care of ourselves. This is how we do it. And that was sort of the theme of the conference. And then the session Michelle and I did, and we, I had a, another colleague of mine who is an organizational behaviorist come and join us to really plant this from not just the nonprofit writ large perspective, but someone who actually knows a lot about the psychology for these things. And they, what AFP told me was they had to move our session from one of the smaller rooms into one of the bigger rooms because there was, quote unquote, so much interest in the topic. And Michelle and I were talking and I said, that's a little worrisome because what it tells me is a lot of people want to vent. A lot of people want to get together and bemoan things that they were hoping would be different and they're not there yet. So for that crowd, you know, Jason, we had one of the first questions that went up was someone who raised their hand. They were a, a, a volunteer coordinator slash funders at one of the local museums. And he raised his hand. He said, this is all great making space, you know, making sure you shut down at 5 p.m. and all this stuff. But my organization never closed during the pandemic. I w- I've been in the office for 30 months. Uh, and a bunch of our staff, we had a pretty robust volunteer and fundraising staff. Some people got let go. So now I'm not only there all the time. I'm now doing, as many of us do, 1.75 people's jobs or two people's jobs. That in 2018, 2019, early 2020, we were hearing that back then. And that was what I thought would be a group that was rallying around a progressive, like, how can we do this together? It was a lot of people just raising their hands and asking, okay, this is great. Our budget, our fundraising goals are higher this year than they've ever been. We have less staff doing it or fewer staff doing it than we were in 2019. And I'm really tired. Uh, So what can we do? And that's where the conversation went. So it was... I would not say that the tone in that room was super optimistic, but it wasn't highly negative. It was more just, this is where we are. We chose to pay to come to this conference. Let's work at this together. And if we can reach that group, that sort of reasonable middle who who haven't just quit to go into the ether and they're not just leaving to go work at Starbucks for, let's face it, the same hourly wage that they might be making 
as a low-level nonprofit fundraiser, if we can reach that group, I think we can work center out. I think in these similar conversations, I think I've had this this conversation sort of warmed up in a similar way in the very recently, probably in the last three to four months. And one of the things I always say is I don't think the I don't think the fundraiser and the donor are the problem. I always I oftentimes like to point out and say that I think we're actually talking about problems between the the fundraiser and their employer, but the way that it sometimes gets conveyed to the rest of the world is that it's a problem between the fundraiser and the donors. And um, because I think there's, there's an assumption, there's sort of a, there's an interpreted assumption. Maybe there's an assumption in between the lines of where some of this stuff's all coming from that, that for some, in somehow or another, that the, that the fundraiser and the donor are sort of out to get each other and not meet each other's expectations. And I think what, what is perhaps really the problem is that, the fundraisers and the donors usually can figure out how to get along just fine. And it's that the, it's that the employer or the organization, the boards and the bosses, I sometimes say have unrealistic, unrealistic expectations of those relationships that we're forming. Does that make sense? Was that somewhere? Was it, was the tension was, was sort of the, was the conversation about bad boards and bosses or was it about bad donors? No. And that's the, there is this, we may have chatted about this last week or recently, but there is this, this idea that I'm seeing in a couple social posts and elsewhere about the, you know, the conversation between sort of donor centricity or community centricity, sure. that whole yeah. ethos. I have never really felt, and maybe this is a little bit of naivete, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about this, that it's been a donor driven thing. You know, one of the points in that donor bill of rights that I wrote was like the main argument. There were 10 notes in that article. And one of them was that we will keep work at work. Um, And my logic there was for a long time, especially over COVID, I've been hearing people say things like I was texting with the donor the other night and it was like Sunday at 7 p.m. Red flags there. But one of the things that's happened on that side of the fence is that fundraisers themselves and maybe the executives that manage them or the managers who manage them, maybe the attention to encouraging care in a way that you work with staff to say, you know, be fierce guardians of your own time. So if it's weekends, evenings, make sure that you respond to someone later, that you don't need to get immediately to it. Um, What we found over these past couple of years, when whether or not you went remote fully or by proxy, It was like the work from home element really just became work more and work longer. You know, days started earlier, they ended later. And I didn't see, you know, I consulted a little bit. I was working in and out of different shops over this time. I didn't see a lot of managers helping emerging staff. You know, there's people who've been, you know, one to 10 years into it, be better stewards of their own time. And not that they needed to micromanage that, but I have worked alongside people who are in their early 20s that... They don't really do email, but they do phone. And so they're perfectly fine to just text and engage with donors at any given time of the day. But as you know, I've managed people for the entirety of my career, and I pay attention to that because if I see people not putting up those bits of protection, and it doesn't need to be hard, hard walls on each side, but if you're not encouraging someone to say, you can, you can clock out at five or six. And really, if you don't get back to this donor tonight, it's Friday night. You can get back to the Monday. I really doubt the world is going to catch on fire because of that. And I think if that's the point you were making, that it was more of a manager 
direct report thing that that care wasn't there. I have certainly seen that a lot. Yeah, I just don't think I don't think that the donors are the ones. Um, I often say here in the podcast, I don't think fundraising has a. I think I don't think we have a fundraiser problem. I think we have a supervisor problem, and <laughs> and what I mean by that is is that we don't. Um, and when I read something like the article that you wrote, I read something that is more of a, um, and this is probably the way that I articulated it that in that previous conversation, it sounds to me like we more have more of an internal problem, which is the relationships that exist within the organization as it relates to fundraising differently than a, um, than an external problem, which is to say that the donors themselves are creating some sort of, uh, are creating some of these problems. Um, I, we have a colleague over in the United Kingdom, and I was just re- reading her dissertation, and she talks about this, what she calls an instrumental, Leslie is her name, she talks about an instrumental instrumental view of, of fundraising, which is, it's a, it's a view that the organizations oftentimes take of fundraising that kind of takes on this, um, what I call a subculture uh, characteristic. Um, and, and then and fundraising almost and she, one of her, one of the people she interviewed sort of describes it this way. Fundraising sort of takes on this commercial like characteristic. So we're sort of this isolated group within the organization that's expected to sort of deliver on expectations and a myriad of different sort of expectations that are not consistent with the rest of the organization. Um, and so go, again, again, getting back to your bill of rights, I read, and when we think about care, for example, I think that's what we're talking about. We're talking about boards and bosses who actually know, actually know how this work goes about. Um, and, and usually in response to reading something like your article, I usually want to say, this is really just, is this, is this really just getting fundraisers to be, to, to sort of conjure up the nerve to turn down jobs, for example? I mean, there's plenty of jobs out there and do we need to be better discerning? at who's actually going to create an environment where you can thrive and who can't. Oh yeah. Uh, gosh, I think we could spend the whole time talking about that. <laughs> One of, you know, I love boards. I serve on a few of them. I've never really had any volunteers at any of the organizations I've worked with or for, for the past 20 years that I didn't adore. I mean, everyone's got that one or two board members that they wish would do certain things a little bit less or other things a little bit more. But one of the things that I have found, and I'm, I'm curious your take on this, is this notion, I, I may have mentioned this last time we talked about that Peter principle, uh, Lawrence Peter's concept from the 1970s. For those who are listening and are not familiar, he satirically suggested that, and I think I'm paraphrasing this wrong, that people will rise to their level of incompetence. And how that might translate in practice is say you've got a really crack major gift officer. They kill it. You know, the, the goal's four million and every year they're bringing in six million. So the organization looks at that and says, we should promote major gift officer X because they're phenomenal. Let's put them in charge of the major gift officer team. So without any landing strip, without any training, without any professional development or other supportive sources, major gift officer X is now director of development over three to five or however many major gift officers. The disparity there between the widget maker and the person who's managing the widget makers is often in our field, I find, hugely chasmic. It's wide. And I have worked for some phenomenally impressive bosses in the fundraising and programmatic space. And I've also seen some who are industry content area experts 
but they just weren't given the same opportunities like our peers in the for-profit or corporate field to grow coaching, professional development, and all those things that takes a time and resource investment. And it's just sort of that middle grows really wide. And that's when I think, especially in our field, it's one of the reasons we can explain in Houston, the average tenure for a fundraiser is something like 16 to 18 months. And I think the recent Gallup poll or whatever, whoever did it said that's actually going down. That's, I think, one of the reasons you have, you'll have really great and smart fundraisers who I'm someone who really, I'm an Enneagram eight. If we talk about that, I'm the challenger. I always push upward. I think I'm a great peer and a great boss, but I always push buttons with my bosses because I need that dyad. And there are some people who are really fit for it and suited for it and who've had the expertise and the experience for it. But I have seen other fundraisers who need that. And all they get is from that person in that top perch. Oh, well, this is how I would do it. So this is how you should do it. And that managed by edict doesn't grow teams. It doesn't encourage. It doesn't make people feel welcome and safe. And then those people in those 16 or 18 months, they realize I'm not doing everything that I could be doing here. So thanks for the opportunity, but goodbye. I mean, we, we say we say fundraising is all about relationships, right? It's kind of our probably our most often used cliche, um, and um, you can't build meaningful relate. You can, I mean, no, you can't. I don't think you can build the types of meaningful relationships that we need to build to have sustainable relationships with our boards and bosses, our employers, nor with our donors in sixteen to eighteen months. And so I think in some ways what we need fundraisers to start doing, just like we need employers to start doing, is looking at these resumes or asking the question, how long did the person before me, you know, stick around? And if there's a if there's a 16 to 18 month timeline that just keeps happening time and time again, whether we're looking at the way that the that the prospective employer manages this process or whether you yourself, the fundraiser, have a tendency to hop from job to job to job. Those are probably not the people or the places that we want to be signing on for. Um, th- that, that's, that's not where, that's not where the magic happens in fundraising is in these short term sort of, uh, you know, we talk about fundraising being transactional where we're creating these transactional relationships with our donors, but, but a lot of times the employers and their fundraisers don't have a relationship that's all that different. And I can't seem to think that when you're standing there in front of that group in, in, in Houston with Michelle, that they're really, that the, that the issue isn't at the heart of it, just these transactional relationships that are just moving in a multi myriad of directions. Nobody's sticking around long enough to make these relationships work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do they say? You know, so they, I don't know who they are, but I've read it that the, the major gift cadence or the arc is, you know, minimum three years to three, grow. Yeah. Three to four years. There was a guy, there's a, you know, some guy wrote a great book and he's highly, highly respected in the higher ed space. And it's what it is. It's, it's this exponential curve that it takes, you know, you put a major gifts officer in the job and for the first year you'll get just incremental growth. And the second year you'll sort of break even perhaps, but then you all of a sudden you see this gift officer sort of just take off exponentially in terms of their potential to raise money, but that's three, but it, but it's on this three to four year curve. And what it is, it, all it's doing is, is it's saying, if you can keep a fundraiser around long enough, meaning you create an environment where they actually want to stay and where they want to actually stay and where the relation, the donors show up, um, 
you're raising a hell of a lot of money in year three that you probably didn't come very close to raising in year one or two. Yep. And the, the flip side of that, and I, I'm forgetting who said it, um, but the flip side of that on the, when you think organizationally, and I happen to be a fundraiser, that's, that's where I spent a lot of my time lately. But from, I also, beyond calling myself a nonprofiteer, I also call myself an organizationist because I am just obsessed with the nature of firms, shops, and how they function. And I think from a budget perspective, some of the data that came out at some point over the past five or 10 years is that the hard cost to an organization, direct and indirect, when a fundraiser leaves is something like $130,000. And that's, I think I've heard some companies say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's a salary we don't have to pay. So we're saving a little bit on the expense side, but the expertise and the relationships that those people had and the prospective future relationships that they can build, when you take into account a fundraiser walking into a CEO's office or their boss's office or their Zoom these days and saying, I'm having a difficult time. Cost of living is 9.1% higher. My raise this year was 3%. I really need that additional 5%. We are still hearing from a number of people. So sorry, we can't make that happen. I understand if you need to leave. And the short-sightedness of not throwing someone three to $5,000 with the prospective loss of $130,000, I think taken in that account, I, I said that stat at the conference session that Michelle and I presented at, and hands that were up went down and people just sort of looked dumbfounded. I think like the, the agency that they didn't know they had in the, the ammo that they could use in those conversations with their managers, they were starting to think like, wow, I know my donors, I know our people, I know the cross-sectional things in the shop. I know what program people to bring with me to meet with this foundation partner and stuff. But wow, my worth is really more than my salary. And I think those kinds of bits of information are really helpful for trying to build that case internally. I mean, Evan, isn't the, listen, any, any, uh, any salary expectation that you could have within the first 18 months has to essentially be determined on day one before you take the job. I mean, there's not a whole lot of, um, I, I don't see, I don't see many career paths in any industry, any sector changing all that dramatic, you know, in terms of compensation, changing all that dramatically between year one and two. So with that 12 month mark. And so I wonder if, if some of this salary conversation, if, if perhaps looking at the, the salary reference on your list, are, are we just simply saying, look, you've got to get the salary negotiation right and, and then expect to probably sit in that tier, that salary tier, probably for a good two to three years without much, much dramatic change. Just simply because that's 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 what the employer needs to understand they're committing to, but that's what you're committing to. Because again, if we're using sort of that that curve that we were talking about a few moments ago, the job doesn't necessarily start to really pay for itself until year three. Does that make sense? It does, and that there. So there's those those two groups of people, I suppose, the ones who really need to know market value, what their worth is. Yeah, you know, do yeah. your research, look at the nine ninety, see what you. Yeah. See what you think the organization can sustain. Exactly. Yes. Um, but there is, I've been talking, I had a number of colleagues that I've spoken with lately who have been at their respective orgs 12, 15, 20 plus years who 
head management. I won't say leadership because we spoke last week. I do not conflate management and leadership. I think they are different things. <laughs> um, that they just didn't get it. And year after year, maybe 1% to 3% incremental cost of living growth. Back when that was an acceptable way to do things. You know, the years between 2010 and 2020 were, you know, after the Great Recession, that that changed a little bit. But it is, it's both, I suppose. And people who are listening to this podcast that may be in their early 20s just getting into it, I think that initial market research and knowing what you can know, and to your point before, be bold and ask the question, you know, is this a new position? If not, why is it vacant? You know, has there been a revolving door of people who've been in that before? You will get a lot of information from how a hiring manager answers or chooses not to answer that question. Yeah, we have negotiated. So I, I have, in some of my consulting work, I've placed fundraisers and we have said to them, you need to know and understand what this, this candidate is worth on day one. But what we also like to get the, the employer, this is, this is negotiate. This is me as the, the, the placing. Uh, consultant negotiating with the the employer where this what the value this this employee can perhaps be at the beginning of years three and four and and we're we're negotiating into that initial conversation increases in pay on day one because we know that if this per, first and foremost if we're if we're introducing them to the right candidate and this candidate's going to do this job in accordance with the way that we're advising the client to do the job. This person's probably not going to pay for themselves 18 months in. But at the beginning of year three, they're going to start to pay for themselves in remarkably, in re remarkably both financial and meaningful sort of ways because they're going to have gotten through all the sort of bumps and bruises of getting the relationship right with their board and their boss. But they're also going to have be in that place where they're starting to build meaningful relationships with donors. And the gifts, the gifts that they're actually securing are going to be reflective of those relationships, not relationships that the donors had with previous, previous fundraisers. Mm -hmm. You know what you're making me think of? And had you asked me this question 20 years ago, I wouldn't have, have had a similar answer. But you know who I see do this, even if they don't pay as well. But you know who I see does this really well is arts organizations like museums and performing arts organizations. And I'll explain why. They tend to look because you kind of have to know who your competition is. Like, say, like here in Houston, we have a couple symphonic organizations, opera organizations. You need to know what you plan to produce three, four, five years, maybe longer down the road. You need to know what the production staff is going to cost. You need to know what talent you want to hire. A local singer is going to be cheaper than bringing in someone from Canada or the UK. And I worked at Houston Grand Opera for a while, and I'd sit in these budgetary production meetings where they would look down the budget line from the tech production side to the fundraising staff to everyone and pitch budgets that look sometimes half a decade down the road in a way that I have not seen. Maybe some higher ed institutions do that, especially when you need to think in the arc of four-year student cycles and things. But a lot of other nonprofits kind of think, say your fiscal year starts January 1, you're starting to have that conversation in October about the next year's budget. And that's where you land. You don't look beyond that. So I think one of the things that you and I probably would both encourage hiring organizations to do is plot that multi-year trajectory. Sounds like you have that conversation with people a lot, but don't just do it where 2023, 2% increase, 2024, 2% increase, because exponentially over time, that's going to be less money for people 
And I just don't see a lot of people doing that multi-out year planning. Yeah, I mean, the last time we did this, the last time we did this with a client and with a candidate that we placed, I mean, it was a $20,000 difference between what they started, what what this this development officer knew that what, what they started with on day one and what they would be earning, I want to say at the end of, perhaps at the either beginning or the end of year three, I'd have to look at the numbers on the contract, but it was a $20,000 difference. So, um, and, and year, and the other thing is, the other thing we did, Evan, is in years one and two, performance metrics were based on direct interaction with donors, not in actual dollars raised. So it was actually, it was all gear. It was all recognizing that a lot of the activity you're going to pick up and any performance that you might get patted on the back for is going to be more of a reflection of work that somebody else before you did. Um, and it's going to be at the beginning of year three and four when you're actually going to be doing things that are an accurate reflection of what what we're trying to do. And this gets back to your idea of, of organizational thinking and, and organizational design. We want the we want the client, the organization, to see and understand how this is working, regardless of who the fundraiser happens to be in that seat at any given time. I don't, yeah, I I think that's I think when you think back on that, I think when you think back on that audience of fundraisers that you're standing in front of in Houston, my guess is is that those who were the most pessimistic about their opportunities and the most sort of feeling the most negative vibes about where they currently were. They're just working in the wrong shops. Those aren't the shops that those people want to be working for because shops don't know what the hell they're doing. These fundraisers (laughs) are signing on for jobs. And even if they give you a great salary in year one, if you're leaving in two years, what does it matter if you're just going to fight, you know, going to work for a lousy shop again for the same salary? You just, you almost just sort of so what if you're making six figures if you're hopping from one job to another job every 18 to 24 months and you can't actually go anywhere from there? Yeah. And you don't have a That's story true. to tell. I mean, I can interview a fundraiser regardless of how old they are, regardless of what job. I can interview a fundraiser and figure out pretty damn quickly whether this person actually knows how to communicate with a donor, actually knows how to sit across the lunch table and have a meaningful conversation that doesn't involve a solicitation et cetera, et cetera. That's what I want to pay for. Mm-hmm. And there's the opportunity. You're absolutely right. And the opportunity to look for too. there, you know, different shops need different things. So you may need someone to, if you're an events heavy, events centric organization, you're going to need someone to come in with a pretty specific skill set. But uh, what I have often tried to do over the past, like let's say five to seven years, especially is look at the propensity for growth on people that I'm looking to onboard or hire. I think the investment as a hiring manager myself in someone who with a couple AFP conferences, maybe they want to do CFRE, whatever it is, some some growth that the organization is interested in investing into, they may be 22, 25, 30, <clears throat> not a whole lot of experience, but with a little bit of lean in and commitment from the organization to make resources available man, wouldn't this person just be going gangbusters by that second and the third year? They may not look that the age of hiring the fundraiser who comes with the Rolodex. Like if I hear that again, I'm going to jump out of a very short window, but <laughs> how, how can we work with people to not just bring in fundraisers who are going to pay for themselves in whatever mechanical way in the first few years, but how can we help bring this person on so that for this organization or for future organizations, because that really is better for everyone. If we are 
gardening and cultivating that next generation of people who just know the right way to do it, because we're all going to be better for that. It's a little bit of a long view. I don't know if all of my, my peers who manage think in that way, but I try to. I mean, is that, is that essentially what we're, I use the word transactional and I think trans, these tr- transactional relationships are just sort of, it, it, it's how we play the game all the way around, whether we're talking about relationships with donors or with employers or, or with fundraisers. And, and I think if, if I'm thinking to, about the, you know, the 28 year old frustrated fundraiser who's in your session in, in Houston, you know, I'm asking him or her, you know, are you signing on for a job that a, had ridiculous fundraising goals in year one um, as if, as if your donors, you know, are just in the midst of, you know, just transacting like crazy and not doing anything else, or are they too heavy in things like galas and golf tournaments and those sorts of things, which again, just points at a bunch of transactions. In some ways you don't even have to look at the compensation and, 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 and all the perks and, and benefits and all that sort of stuff that comes with a job. You can just look at what the fundraising expectations are. And you can begin to discern, okay, this boss and this board just doesn't understand how this works. Mm-hmm. I think my primary response to all of that is, yep. <laughs> I, one thing that we, the, the three of us who are presenting at this conference, one of the things that I, I felt it was important to share with people, because the, one of the people on the stage has been working with me as a, a little bit of a career coach at, at some point in the, the recent years, I took a pause and I said, I really wanted to reflect and make sure I've been at this for a while, but I wanted to make sure that I was putting the right foot forward. Yeah. This person had me do the one that we did was VIA. I think it's values in action. If you, uh-huh. okay. any, anyone who's listening can just Google VIA character assessment. And I, you know, coming up on 20 years on this, I really thought I knew who I was. And I think one of the great things about, I did a master's in organizational development and things that you continue to learn about yourself is when I look back on all the nonprofits where I did well and the ones that I didn't do well, what I can pinpoint now is a cohesion of values that I yeah. personally have and yeah. that are mirrored and encouraged and celebrated by the organization. So. You could probably tell this by by some of our conversations, Jason, but I really don't take myself all that seriously. Humor is one of my glaringly top values, which I think is charming. My mother would agree. My wife probably wouldn't. But it's you know it works for me. And I think what I learned about looking at my top three to five values is say, whatever organization I work with next or wherever I'm going to land 20, 30 years down the road, I have to find synergy between at least three of my top five values and what the organization purports to put forward. And that can apply to their fundraising. That can apply to their board leadership. That can apply to the executive team. And when I look back and I see the organizations where there was a disintegration of trust and all things like that, it's because there were almost no values that I shared with the organization. And we shared that with the crowd. And I we sent it out afterwards. And a few people reached out to me and said, I took this assessment And I compared it against what my organization's values are. And there's nothing there. And now I fully understand why I'm not doing well. And that was, I think for some, for me, it was eye-opening in my four decades on this planet. And for some of these people who are 22, 25, 30, kind of just getting into this, that self-reflective moment changed things for them. And I I think it's so cool. 
So I have told fundraisers. So let, let's let's imagine we're talking to the 28-year-old, 26, 28-year-old uh, fundraiser who's going to be in a more donor-facing role. So not Gala's Golf Tournaments, Giving Tuesday sort of stuff, but taking donors out to lunch sort of stuff, right? I have said to them, because in, 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 if they're showing me or referring to a job description, I've said, so when you talk to that boss that you're interviewing with, ask him or her to describe four or five of those lunch table type conversations that they have recently had with donors themselves. And, um, and we've done this with prospective clients as well. So me and a colleague will go out to lunch with a prospective client and the CEO and a board member will be with us. And I'll ask the CEO. So tell me about the four or five conversations. You know, I'm not, I'm not prying for names or gift amounts or anything. I'm just trying to find out if this person even knows how to have lunch with a major donor. In a lot of cases, they don't. And I've told fundraisers, don't go work for that fella. Don't go work for that gal who doesn't know how to do some of the same thing. If, if you're, um, I said this to a client recently in Oklahoma. I said, I, who, who's, who's recently lost a fundraiser and, and she herself doesn't, the CEO hasn't gotten her head completely wrapped around what it means to be a fundraiser. And I said, why don't you sort of put this hiring process on pause and learn how to raise money yourself? Um, I mean, how many of the how many of the young fundraisers that are reading your bill of rights need to really just hear the hear the advice that go work for somebody who knows how to raise money, Mm -hmm. who knows how to have lunch with a major donor who might say something who might be a complete jerk, who might say something completely off the wall, who might, you know, try to exchange a check in order for a board seat. You can't afford them that, you know, Um how many fundraisers just need to be told things like that? Probably more of them who do. And I would say right. ad- admitting fully my naivete, I think a-, a little bit of that element or that ethos is missing from um, what really started out to be a very gripey venting article. Uh, I give the editor of Planet Three News Digest a lot of credit for helping me make my uh, development bill of rights a lot more digestible. Um, yeah. It's a lot more on the, you know, we we are fundraisers hear us roar and be protective, but you are, you're really on to something there. And we talked a little bit about this. I'm, I'm writing this book on servant leadership and philanthropy yep. Yep. and a couple of those elements, as I've leaned into understanding this practice a little bit more, you know, some of the core tenets of servant leaders are people who are aware that they are committed to the growth of people that they can conceptualize. Yeah. And, you know, what you said is absolutely true. And the flip is also sometimes true where, you know, I've been out to a meeting or a lunch or a coffee or something with, you know, me, the CEO and donor or prospect. Yeah. You know, sometimes I'm the most right person to be there as the head of fundraising. Sometimes the CEO is, and sometimes I'm not, you know, sure. you don't need yes. the fundraiser there because the CEO yes. is they're crack smart. They're sharp. You've given them the briefing. They know what three things to cover. But knowing that, I think to your point, that obligation that I think the person who's coming into a prospective role, that is a great question. And gosh, I wish I thought about it for, for this conversation <laughs> in my article to be asking, because I think sometimes we'll see a good salary because more people are posting the salaries and the benefits look good. And, you know, I think I can do this. And you've done the values exercise and I aligned with them. This is a place I think I can not just survive, but thrive. But then you go out to that lunch and you know, you and the donor really, you're kicking it hard, tossing back iced teas, not Long Island, just regular ones. And the CEO is just sitting there, hands crossed, not chiming in at all. And that that can become awkward. You can work on that maybe, maybe you can't, but I think that's a phenomenal point. 
Oh, and, we, and we've seen the opposite. I mean, it, it's not to, it's not the CEO. So to, to, to sit on that. So uh, my colleague uh, was working with a with a client. This was just the CEO who's in the midst of a capital campaign, and and she she and the CEO. So she's in the consulting role, and the CEO and the major donor go out to lunch, and this guy can't shut up. And so, and th- and that's the same problem that a fundraiser would need to sort of be able to pick up on is that, you know, you go out to lunch with the, with, with your lead donor on this for- forthcoming capital campaign and your boss. And if your boss can't shut up and sit back and listen to the donor and, or let the two of you develop some rapport that doesn't require them to be at the center of everything, you've got the same sort of, um, you got the same sort of messy predicament, but, but, you know, and I think about our conversation last week and some of the interest that you have, Evan, I think one of the things that we say at our firm is that we're an organizational design firm before we're a fundraising consultancy, because we think that a lot of these problems, we take, we take a list, a, 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 a bill of rights like yours, or we take some of the, the things that you and I are stirring up in this conversation. And we say, these are organizational design problems. These aren't fundraising problems. And and, there, and there's other people in other departments that, in a completely yeah, in a different context, but deserve the same sorts of things. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot on your list when I remember reading it. There wasn't a whole lot on your list that if you just if you just sort of Jimmy rigged it a little bit, oriented it to, towards to somebody else's role, it applies the same way. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm happy to admit that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think we have, and I think what's exciting about your, because you and I are about the same age. And I think about the students I have over at the college, for example, I think some of the, and I'm not always hyper excited about the professionalization of the sector, but I do get excited about professionalization of the the supervising role, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. people who are actually supervising these people. I remember I got, I had the privilege of getting to know a woman at, um, uh, at, uh, at CHOP at the children's hospital in Philadelphia um, she probably wasn't the most, isn't the most dynamic fundraiser, but she was a remarkable supervisor. They had her managing a team of 20 gift officers because she kind of like you were saying a few minutes ago, understood how to manage the dynamics of the fundraising process. Um, and she wasn't there. The other thing is she wasn't inclined to sort of crowd out the relate, you know, get in the way. Yeah. That, that level of awareness. I mean, some of the people that I have learned the most from, and I just want to work there are a couple bosses when I look back, and including my current boss now, when I look back and I think like I would follow these people, you know, I would foot soldier march behind right. them. They, you know, I harp a lot on the servant leader stuff, but they they are, without even knowing it, practitioners of this capacity of being so open and committing to the growth of everyone around them that everything seems really seamless. These are really inspirational people. They lean into silent listening. They understand that they don't need to be the center of attention. And I, I think you find like when we, when we topped off this conversation about those people who like those Peter Principle sufferers where content matter experts, not great managers, but they're there. The opposite, we need to celebrate those people, point to them more. And those are the people I want to hear from on podcasts and at conferences. Like I don't, there, there's another gaggle of folks that I don't want to hear from. I will not point anybody out, but I think you and I would agree there. I think I've said this before, but I'm thinking, again, we've kind of sat on sort of unpacking this audience that you and Michelle were enjoying this conversation with. I think I think one of the things that excites me about a lot of the because, 
you know, nine times out of 10, the majority of the people that I've talked to here on the podcast, 350 plus episodes now, um, have been our age or younger. And I just look forward to the day when we're sort of on, on the other side of some of this, what I call angst that the fundraising community seems to have. And these people are hiring fundraisers. Right. So it's the people who and I remember that kind of response getting when I when I published the first book, I remember starting to realize how much I was writing to the fundraiser who was about 10 years in, who wasn't sort of beyond the going to conferences, beyond the credentialing and the CFRE stuff and beyond all the sort of the fundraising 101 type of stuff. And they were starting to think critically about how you design the right habits and behaviors and systems into organizations. Um, still now, a lot of those people that I got to know are still in, they're still not in supervised leading CEO type roles, but I look forward to the day when like those young people that were in your workshop are the CEOs of organizations, uh, you know, being fundraising CEO as uh, being fundraising CEOs, as some of us call them. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, <clears throat> no, it makes perfect sense. And you made me think about, uh... What I don't want those people to do is just all go and become consultants because then. No, no, don't, no, I don't want them to do that. I want them, then they wouldn't hire me to help them get this all figured out. <laughs> yes. And I think that's, that's an opportunity. And, and you do like, it's sort of like the Richard Brand Sony and, you know, Virgin Airlines mentality of, yeah. you know, if you're, if your clients and your customers, for us, it's donors, you know, board members and others on the, the outside of the orbit. If those are the people you want to respect and steward and engage, like, like you said, it has to start inside. He said, for instance, said like, if you treat your staff, well, you teach your, you treat those people inside. Well, your customers, your clients are going to have a great experience. You're going to have a happy experience. And you see, you and I both know those fundraisers who are just jaded, sad, tired. They haven't had a break in 14 months. And that reflects when they're out visiting with a donor or a prospect that translates people generally wear more on their sleeves than they think. And I think a really apt, mindful, listening oriented CEO or head of a fundraising shop will intuit those things, but that starts somewhere that like early jaded 25 year old is going to grow into a very disappointing manager one day. Notice how I didn't say leader uh, or just hop out of the field and go join the local consulting firm where their advice is listened to because they're no longer staff members. Yeah, I can spot those people in like five. I, I can spot those people in like two minutes. So there's a whole cohort of people that are older than <laughs> I love picking on the baby boomer generation of consultants out there that are in our space. There's a whole cohort of them who never got beyond some of the frustration and the angst that we're talking about. And they just jumped the, they jumped around from job to job and then they eventually landed a consulting contract or two and they've started consulting, but they've never, they've never sort of got, they've never themselves professionally and, and personally sort of experienced this work in a meaningful way where, um, where you and I are sort of describing, you know, hopefully some of these younger people might actually end up at um, because consulting has become for a lot of people, a way of sort of vacating the reality that this is never going to get any better. Um, that's, that's just not, uh, that's, that's, that's not, that's not the game I'm trying to play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. We see it and everything we can do to help support the opposite thumbs up. Well, in part, and part of what I'm able to pick up on too, 
is a lot of a lot of these consulting types, a lot of a lot of our colleagues in the consulting ranks end up making a lot of recommendations that are really no different than the job description problems and the organizational design problems that 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 you and I are sort of messing with and and, and picking on here. And so mm-hmm. um, they're just it's it's that it's that old sort of idea of sort of you're just tinkering under the hood of an old car. You're not really sort of trying to do a complete overhaul of what's actually happening. And that's what a lot of these organizations they need, you know, there may be people on that board and that boss may need to go if you actually hope to have a fundraiser who's actually going to shine. Yeah. You're making me think, and I, I don't want anyone listening to think I've got a qualm with uh, consultants. I did a little bit of it over the past year. Uh, yeah. They, most, we'll- <laughs> most of my listeners, I'm the guy who's got the qualms with consultants. <laughs> no, nobody, I, nobody who's a regular listener is going to hold that against you. Oh, good. They can hold it against you. I want to be <laughs> the good. But there was one organization that I worked with. I will not mention what they are, where they are, but this is a, a shop that, you know, been around for over a hundred years and they have a board of 70 plus people. They have 1.5 staff member devoted to everything related to that board, scheduling the meetings, yeah. entering their conversations in the CRM, everything. That is a 1.5 minimum full-time employee worth of work. And so they had a really great, or they have a really great advancement director who had has been saying this stuff to the CEO for a long time. And here I come as part of a, a cohort of consultants and I make the same recommendation. Either shrink the board, you know, put half of them on an advisory committee because that half is not participating anyway. I'm being really reductive here. I don't want anyone to listen and think, <laughs> just go do that. But there, there were a couple of very simple things that you, I, the advancement director, or anyone would have recommended. You need a few more people to help properly engage and steward this group because it's a group that loves the organization. And if you think they're not giving at their full philanthropic potential, you're probably right, but you're not committing any resources to make that possible. And it sort of floored me to think, gosh, that's something that your current staff member who you're already paying is telling you, but here I come along, do, do, do consultant Evan. And, and wow, that's good advice, Evan. Sure. I'm not the one who really had it initially though. So that was, that's one little story. Evan, we're going to put a link to your article in the, uh, in the show notes. And uh, I suspect that some of our listeners, they, they know how to find me, but they might be interested in continuing a conversation with you. Um, how would you suggest that they reach out and find you? And then one of the questions I always like to ask is sort of as a, as a sort of to wrap around that response is who's that person you want to hear from? Oh gosh. So LinkedIn for me lately is a great place. You just look, there's a couple Evan Wildstein's on LinkedIn, but I'm the the dashing fundraising looking one. <laughs> if you search me, Evan Wildstein uh, website is just evanwildstein.com. There's another giant picture of me up there and some links to some stuff. Cool. And who do I want to hear from? Yeah. You know, I love, one of my favorite things, I've enjoyed fundraising. I've enjoyed public programs. I have commissioned and produced operas. I've done community work. I love everything that I've done. But my favorite thing that I've been a participant of in the nonprofit sector is managing and committing to the growth of other people. So if people are curious about how to better engage their staff, you know, especially emerging staff, or if you're a staff member who might just be having a little bit of trouble with your boss or a board member or something like that, and you're looking for ways to commit to growth, those are the people that I want to hear from because I love those conversations. It's my favorite thing. 
Cool, Evan. It has certainly been a pleasure this weekend last to get to know you. Uh, I'm so, sooner or later, I'm going to be in the Houston area now with the uh, uh, people are traveling a little more often. I do look forward to having lunch or a cup of coffee or something. Um, and uh, if it ever strikes you to come back, you're always welcome. Uh, thank you. This is great. I appreciate it. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.